Dave, howdy, and hello. We are back with Cibolo Creek Conversations. My name is Wyatt Marchant, and I'm here with Mr. Paul Wilson. How are you, sir? Good. How are you doing? Doing all right. Surviving. I saw a post the other day. You're like 100 days away from getting married. Yeah, it's like 173, I think. Oh, wow. I'm doing my math right. 173, that's more than 100. Yeah, because it's about six, about six months, which is 180, so... But still, 173 in that much. And from what I understand, you, uh, you're like almost all prepared, ready to go. Yeah, just about. Like, we're not even really, the big thing now is just get, trying to find a place to live without breaking the bank. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah. Yeah. Rent high instead of buy high. That's what <laughs> I've heard. Yeah, I think that's the going advice. Yeah. So that's the plan. That's the plan without living in some small apartment. That we're on top of each other. Well, I'm excited for you. Yeah, no, it. Um, we're very excited. Looking forward to it. It's uh, very much a blessing. Good. And we're glad for you to be doing the ceremony as well. Yeah, I'm excited to and honored to get to be a part of the big day for you guys. Mm-hmm. I, I expect you to roast me at some point in your little. Oh, now why? Why would you think that I would do something like that? Because you have a platform that I can't respond on. <laughs> That's why you'd do it. <laughs> No, I, I, no, I wouldn't do that on your special day. I, you, you, you can, you can. <laughs> but I wouldn't be right unless you did. Yeah, that's, right. that's probably the truth. Something would be off if I didn't. Yeah, something would have to happen, especially with how much of a hard time I give you. Yeah, the one time we give you a microphone with me, and you on the same stage, you didn't miss the opportunity to Mm-mm. roast me like right in front of the entire congregation. That's how you get everybody to like you instantly. <laughs> you roast the guy who's always talking. <laughs> okay, I'll keep that in mind. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But, I mean, you give me a microphone, I do something wrong anyways. Honestly, this is the best time I've done because the last the time before I roasted you on stage when I had the microphone, I went up there and I forgot to turn it on, and then... It was very awkward. Just say that. You trying to get your microphone turned on while you were no? Were you hosting? Yeah, I was hosting. I just gave up and I said, "All right, guess I'm just gonna do it without." But nobody can hear me online, which I didn't think about when I was freaking out on stage. I kept my cool, but then I grabbed Matt came and gave me his, or the worship pastor came and gave me his mic, and it didn't work instantly because they had to turn it on. And so I was like, "Am I being punked?" Because I didn't know it was off. Well, we were, we we're just giving you some good, you know, on-the-job training of how to be adaptable in in a situation when things aren't going well. Yeah. I've, I've noticed that as long as you're funny when it happens, there's a lot of forgiveness. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. then the next service, I got it right, and it was boring. I was like, I should have had something go wrong then, too. should have just pretended it yeah. was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. But anyways, back to the topic at hand, which I'm about to announce. Um, as you guys know... The past few episodes, we have been doing, uh, I guess, answers to uh, some questions that we received on a Q&A Sunday, which is um, something that Cibolo Creek does once a year, at least, um, where the congregation just gets to send in any questions they want, uh, and Paul answers them in real time on stage, obviously, with only about an hour, depending on how much Paul wants to push it. Um, you don't have, he, you know, he doesn't have that much time to answer that many questions. And so we thought that it would be, um, appropriate to go and answer some of the questions that we received that he didn't get to, uh, on that morning. One of which, um, 
well, not one of which, we received a lot revolving around um, parents sending in, I guess, just advice of how to bring their kids up, best bring their kids up in a culture that um, is, it, to say the least, different, um, perhaps dangerous, whether it's technology or just the culture itself, um, and very much confusing for how parents should kind of navigate that world. Do you yeah. say that's pretty good? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I was just sitting here thinking while you were describing that. You know, we've probably been doing these Q and A's for ten years or so, and just a quick look back. It's interesting how the questions from year to year change, and in some years, it seems like most of the questions are sort of spiritual, theological in nature. Other years, there's been um, interest in sort of like um, the political, cultural environment that are going on. And so people have questions about what's what's our position or what's a Christian's position on this or that. And so it was interesting in this last one, there was a an abundance of questions about help me navigate this world that I'm living in. And in particular, the one that you're referring to or the couple that you're referring to, these were parents saying, man, I got my hands full. I've got elementary age school children or I've got teenagers in junior high, senior high who are being introduced and exposed to all sorts of things. And parents, I think this really genuine um, plea for help, like I think the parents are... They're asking from two places of need. Some of the parents are saying, I don't even know how I should respond to some of what I'm hearing and seeing in our world. You know, help me as a Christian to know how to think about these things. But then they're also coming from a point of need to say, help me help my kids. Yeah. And uh, some parents are saying, I think I have a response figured out. I think I have a position or a, you know, a paradigm that, that's... Uh, working for me as I embrace or as I encounter my culture at work or and in our friendships and other arenas. But I don't really know how to do that with my children. Uh, I don't know what language to use. I don't know where the line between me just sort of enforcing my worldview on my kids and or, you know, allowing them the liberty to form their own worldview. And it's just such a delicate dance and it's full of all sorts of landmines and so it's it's just interesting that this latest one this latest Q&A that we did there seemed to be a lot of questions around that whole social cultural dilemma that people are finding themselves living in and wanting to do right as Christians as Christ followers and I think the tension there is and this, I think this would be an excellent discussion sometime for the podcast was, you know, what's, what is the balance between speaking the truth and speaking it in love? Mm. And I think parents, particularly with younger children, they're wanting to raise their kids to be these loving, kind, compassionate, understanding, empathetic, sympathetic, hearted children or people. They, they want that for their kids. 
but they also want them to understand and know truth and right and wrong and morality and, you know, the distinctions between all of those things. And we just happen to be living in a time where anybody who stands up for right versus wrong or truth versus a lie ends up getting labeled all sorts of derogatory you know, terms and are castigated as being unloving or judgmental or you know, what, whatever the derogatory idea is. And, and parents don't want that for their kids because mm-hmm. then their kids just end up getting bullied, yep. you know, either by their peers or sometimes even by um, other adults in their life. And so it is, it's, it's a hard, hard time to be raising kids and knowing how to do this in a way that's, you know, um, healthy and, and balanced. Yeah. I, I really feel, really feel for parents. Um, you know, my wife and I, we have two sons. Um, both of our sons are young men now, like 26 and 21. And while we're still very engaged and aware of kind of what's going on in their world, um, they're also at a place now where they're making many of their own decisions and choices, and we don't we don't really have a say in assigning what direction they they choose to go. And, and thankfully, from what we know, they're they're both making some really healthy, solid choices. So, um, but boy, if if our kids were in middle school right now, it'd be I think a whole different ball game. And, and again, my, my sons are still fairly young, so it wasn't that long ago that they were in junior high. Mm-hmm. And I think you and I have had a conversation that just since the time that you were in high school, um, everything's changed a lot. Yep. The, the, the sheer volume of what kids are being exposed to and the, intense, the intensity or aggressiveness in which it's being you know, thrown at them is just creating a dynamic that I'm not even sure I understand and appreciate. The parents living this every day. Well, how, I mean, how, I'm not a parent yet, obviously. Um, well, I guess not obviously, but I'm not a parent yet. <laughs> um, but like, how do you think I feel? Like, who knows what it's going to be like in five, six years? Um, Careful what number you put there. Your parents are going to be expecting grandkids. Well, they can expect all they want. <laughs> They can expect all they want. They just stay alive. That's their problem. Um, but yeah, I mean, like yeah. at the rate it's changing, just in the last five to ten years. Imagine the next five to ten years, if if nothing, if nothing happens to stem the tide. Yeah, that's called homeschool. That's the answer <laughs> to that one right there. Possibly for at least one answer. But yeah, um, you know we always talk about the proverbial slippery slope. Yeah, and you know there's a place where on the slope you get so far over the the vertical edge that now you're on the horizontal edge of the slope. And using the analogy, there's a point where the slippery slope now you're against gravity. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter how much you you fight and you claw to stay there on the on the the curve. You can't fight the forces, and it just drags you 
down. Yeah. And I, I kind of, and I don't want to be alarmist or the prophet of doom here, but as, as a student of culture and society, I really do look at what I'm seeing happening in our society and in our culture, and I go, we may be getting to that place where there's going to be no recovery. And then the descent is just going to come at, you know, an enormously fast pace. And the decline of much of what we've always known and understood as, you know, morality and and truth and freedom, it's going to change right before our very eyes. And, you know, I have people who, you know, push back on that and say, you know, it's not that bad and that'll, that'll never happen. And there's just too much history at, you know, throughout the world to demonstrate that, yes, it can happen. It has happened. And when it did happen and all the pieces were in place, it happened very, very quickly and it got very, very ugly. Yeah. And I think there's a certain naivete to say, say or to think that'll never happen in America. And I, I, I'm, I'm not going to be that naive. Well, and those people that are saying that that can't happen here are the same ones that were saying that a lot of the ideologies that are causing this kind of confusion was just on college campuses. It's not going to spread out into like broader society and culture. It's just going to stay on college campuses. Once they get a job, that it'll go away. <laughs> that didn't happen. It spilled out. Um, and, and so, yeah. It, saying that it just can't happen or like it's not going to get that bad, I think is naive. And preparing for it is better than being unprepared for it. And, and that isn't just um, some sort of, um, you know, cultural conspiracy theory. That's a biblical concept. Yeah. I mean, the writers of the New Testament are very clear that there will be a worsening of the times. I mean, just a kind of a short way of describing that. That um, throughout history, there will be a decline of morality and a decline of truth, and a decline of um, guardrails or boundaries that, once again, the world will sort of know this um, anything-goes sort of existence. And when any, anything and everything goes, it's not good. Some people like to portray that as, well, that would be utopia if anything and everything goes, but... As that's not how it works out. So this isn't just sort of, you know, conspiratorial talk. This is, you know, the Bible indicates that there will be a decline throughout history that will be extremely difficult for the faith of Christians to prevail, for the truth of God to um, have, you know, a mooring on an influence in society and i think it's the person who's wise whose eyes and ears are open to that Mm -hmm. and can look at can look at the news and can look at culture and look at society and go well i mean i'm starting to see some pretty clear evidence that that's exactly what's happening and uh so I'm, you know, as a pastor, I'm, I live in this balance or this tension of trying to figure out how do you talk about those things 
to prepare a congregation to live out their lives as followers of Jesus Christ in an ever-changing world that's in decline without, without you know, using the church or the, the pulpit, if you would, as some sort of a soapbox about, you know, those things. And it's, it's, a, it's a difficult tension to navigate. Because mm-hmm. um, you want to talk about like examples, relevant examples of how I'm seeing certain things happen in relationship to biblical truth, and yet some people they don't they don't think the church should traffic in any of that, and it's just been an interesting dance in my heart and mind to try to figure out how and when to talk about those things in a way that is truly um, anchored in the scriptures and not just sort of, you know, political rhetoric. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I mean, like, back to your, like, slippery slope examples, perhaps a good time to do that is whenever you think that the chance of someone starting to slip, someone being the congregation or just people in general, Christians in general, it is pretty high. It's like... When do you do, yeah, when do you say, hey, there's a slope there? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you if you use the uh, analogy and you kind of look at it in depth, the time to, you know, to warn somebody about the slippery slope is not when they're on the slope. No. It's Too long before the yeah. slope. It's, it's giving them caution about the direction that you're headed will end up on the slope and beyond, if nothing stops you from um, making the choices that you're currently making. Yeah. And, um, you know, this is the book of Proverbs over and over and over again. The first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, there's a lot of reference to this young man. And, you know, he's he's a metaphor, this young man. And, and then the, the context of the book is like his, his father offering him advice to guide him through life. And and the father uses this illustration of a young man who's being foolish, who's making poor choices, and he, he heads off down paths that are very attractive and inviting and seductive and pleasurable, and, and, and they're very appealing. And then the father says, but the further he goes down the path and the deeper he gets into the choices that he makes, he ends up finding out that it's not a good path at all. Mm-hmm. And there's severe consequences to his, his life. And so the father in the, in the context of, of the genre is saying, son, don't, don't head down that path. Steer clear of that path, that foolish path. And so, yeah, I stand as a pastor in the life of a congregation, and, you know, I have enough conversations with people, whether that's counseling appointments or lunches or, you know, a host of interactions that I have with our congregation. And, and I, I hear very alarming things about the thinking behind how some people are choosing to live. And I see slippery slope. I see them... Um, headed in a direction that will be um, dangerous. Stop me if I've already talked about this in a previous podcast, but mm-hmm. 
and then this, we're already off the talk topic, but intro, intro. <laughs> <laughs> so I was thinking about culture and society and what we're seeing and where it heads. And I, I was thinking in terms of if I, this may not make sense to all of our listeners unless you live here in San Antonio, but if we were standing on I-10 at like, let's say, Wurzbach, and I'm standing in the medium the, the, on the, the wall between the, the north and the, um, I mean, sorry, the west and the eastbound lanes. If I was standing there and if you asked me, can you see Houston from here? I'd say no. And you'd say, can you see El Paso from here? And I'd say no, because Houston's three hours away east and El Paso's, what, six weeks away. <laughs> Seems like it when you're driving there. Right, six hours away west. And so I can't see it from I-10 and Wurzbach. There's too many twists and turns and billboards and buildings. There's too many. There's too much distance between those destinations. So, no, I can't see them from there. But here's what I know. If I got in a car and I drove three hours east, I would eventually come to Houston. Mm-hmm. And if I got in a car and drove west for six hours, I would eventually come to El Paso because that's where the road leads. Yeah. And so what I'm seeing morally and culturally um, happening in our, in our times is while I can't, ne- I can't necessarily see everything from here, I know enough. I know enough from history. I know enough from the guidance of the scriptures. I know enough from um, just being an observant, intelligent human being that if, if a person stays on the road that they're currently on, they will come to the slippery slope and they'll go over the edge. Yep. And so what I'm trying to do as a pastor is shepherd a congregation in a, in a, you know, a clear and compelling enough way to say, Hey, the road you're on or the road we are on will not get us to where we want to go. And we can be naive and say it'll never happen, but if you stay on the road long enough, you will eventually arrive at the place that God's word tells us are the consequences of these sorts of immoral um, abdications of truth. And that's what I'm seeing. And going back to you know our original topic, I, I think parents have enough of a, you know, they have experience as, 30, 40, 50 year old adults. And they kind of, they've, they've traveled enough of their own road to know if I stay on this path, I'll, I would have ended up in these places or I did end up in these places. And so they're concerned about their kids. I don't want to see my kids go down the same path that I did and end up in the places that I did. So I really, my heart really goes out to parents these days and the enormous challenge they have of trying to navigate culture and society and what their kids are encountering so if we can if we can do something here today to offer a little bit of encouragement and help i think that would be be valuable yeah yeah no absolutely and um well i guess we'll just kind of get get into the the main question that kind of stemmed from all of this was uh, somebody had asked 
Do we shield our kids from evil or show them the evil and point them in the right direction? And how do we do this properly? Um, that question, and so then some things that you were even saying earlier, is like biblically, it's not, hang with me here, it's not a sin to drink, right? It's a sin to get drunk. It's um, not a sin to eat food, but it is a sin to be gluttonous and eat too much and to be consumed by it. Um, and these like to be to go too far to ha- in excess. It's not a sin to have money or have things, but if that's the only thing you're focused on. And in the same way, it's like with parenting, or even with these ideas that can cause problems. A lot of them, they themselves are problematic, but they're even worse if they're taken too far in excess or too far in a single direction down that road. Um, and even with parenting, it's like, do we shield our kids from evil and keep it, keep them into this small walled off place where they don't know what the world is like um that can be almost too harsh of a hand too excess when then they're not going to be i guess they're not going to be exposed to anything you know they won't be prepared for anything yeah yeah i think on that sunday when we got that question uh, i think one of my responses was um we want to raise wise children and wise is a great word for healthy um, we want to raise wise, responsible, healthy, mature children. That, that's the objective. Um, as parents, we're stewards of these lives that God has entrusted to our care. And that right there is, is an enormous understanding because it really, to be a good steward of the lives that were entrusted to your care, you have to be an engaged, you have to be... Um, uh, a very involved and vigilant parent, particularly in these days. Mm-hmm. So um, we, we want to raise these wise, healthy, mature, responsible um, human beings. And what we have to recognize is that that takes a lot of work. <laughs> that doesn't just happen. Parenting is not easy. Yeah. And oh. so what I was what I was saying to the congregation that day is we want to raise these wise children. We don't want to raise naive children. Mm-hmm. But what that demands is th- that the release of information or the exposure to information and ideas, it has to be it has to be doled out in increments of time that correspond with the child's capacity to be able to understand them and process them. And so um, there's certain ideas that can be explained to three and four and a five-year-old that's healthy for them and is necessary for them. But there's other ideas that shouldn't be introduced to a three and a four and a five-year-old. In fact, they shouldn't be introduced till somebody's 16, 17, or 18. And right now, and it's all over, you know, examples in the news, there's this whole push to take themes that really should be introduced only to children with a capacity to process the information. And we're, we're looking at a late teen, who, and even that may be early when you start to think about brains being completely formed, not until what, age 25 or something like that. But at least there's a, a sort of a dexterity to be able to handle some themes yep. that but now there's a whole push to introduce those themes fitting for 16 17 18 year olds 
two, three, four, and five-year-olds. And that's very concerning. And so what I'm, what I'm going to advise as a parent is, yeah, you have to introduce your children to all sorts of ideas because they're going to encounter them. But you have to introduce them at a pace that your child's capable of understanding and processing them. And so a, a wise parent just recognizes, well, this is not the time to be talking about this topic or allowing them exposure to this topic because they just don't have the mental, emotional bandwidth to handle it. Yeah, And so it does. It takes a really intelligent parent to, to be able to distinguish when, where, and how their, their child uh, is introduced to topics. And so what that requires is that the parent has to be very vigilant, not only in what am I talking about and how am I talking about it, but what are they encountering on television or what are they encountering in you know other forms of entertainment, whether that's movies that kids are watching or books that they're reading. And it certainly demands that parents be very vigilant about what other adults are saying mm-hmm. to their children. Um, you know, there used to be a day, and I, I, again, this maybe makes me sound old. I think there was... It the, does. It does. Thank <laughs> you, Mike. Uh, I think there was a day where this assumption was adults have a child's best interest at heart. And so a child wouldn't... I mean, an adult wouldn't purposefully mislead or confuse or manipulate a child. I think those days are over. A parent cannot just assume that. They have to be very diligent to um, vet who, who it is that's having an influence in the lives of their kids, from teachers to coaches to, you know, um, clubs that kids are involved in. What friends' houses they're going to, and I—I I don't want to be the parent who you know is afraid and alarmed about everything. But there's just too many examples that demonstrate that not every adult is mature enough and uh, healthy enough to distinguish what children should be introduced to at at a pace that's that's good for them. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like those things, regardless if the child is ready to understand it, should not be introduced by really anyone but their parents, anyways, right? You know? Well, yes, I would say that generally speaking, the parents ought to be the stewards of that information. Yeah. Now, the way that I would um kind of knock out the walls on that that definition I would say, or anything or anybody, the parent has the, um, has approved. Yeah. So like a counselor, a doctor Mm -hmm. or a trusted teacher or coach or something. So if the parents are aware of and knowledgeable of who it is that their kids are being influenced by, then that's certainly a resource to parents because granted there's plenty of situations where parents don't know what to say or don't know what to do or yeah. when. And so you have a pediatrician or you have a psychologist or a therapist or a counselor or a pastor or, you know, a teacher or trusted friend who may have skills and knowledge 
about that. And so you use them as resources and you allow them to speak into the life of your children. But this whole idea of keeping the parents out of the loop and denying parents access to what children are being exposed to, that's completely inappropriate. And uh, parents ought to feel very vindicated to stand up and oppose that whenever they find themselves being left out of the, the, per, the parenting loop of what it is that their children are being exposed to. Certainly, yeah. Well, sir, yeah, and whoever gets the blessing, because a lot of the times, too, like um, whenever I was in the student ministry here, like the, the kids aren't going to talk to their parents about certain things. And so even in that way, it's like, okay, we'll go with this person who essentially has my blessing, and I, yeah. I know that person. Hopefully you'll talk to them more likely than me which is understandable for certain topics with kids. Um, but you definitely shouldn't be kept out of the loop. Um, and and also, like this isn't just what we're referring to. These aren't things that we've just read. These are videos that we've seen of teachers themselves mm-hmm. saying that they do such things. It's not, yeah. it's not just us being hyperbolic or ridiculous. Um. But yeah, so they are up against, I mean, like, for instance, back whenever I was, I mean, I graduated from high school five years ago, things have certainly changed, like, like you said, and it's even more surprising now how it's like, I mean, I went to high school in Bernie, which is a very, very small, little kind of secluded to itself town outside of San Antonio in Texas, where you'd think would be just about, I guess, the safest place from weird (laughs) ideological ideas to seep through not true like they like they are here too um and things have changed a lot and i do think a lot of that comes through social media and yeah because we we no longer live isolated in the communities that we grow up in yeah we live very much in a global world because we have immediate access to what's happening around the world Mm -hmm. and so um a, a kid in bernie texas he he has access to anything happening in Hollywood, California, uh, New York City, China, Japan, Russia. I mean, he literally can have influence from anywhere in the world. So it, it's it would be again naive to think that that sort of thing wouldn't penetrate. You know what we call the bubble here, this mm-hmm. isolated, safe. You know, upstanding little community that we live in is what we often refer to as the bubble because it seems to be you know somewhat insulated and protected from certain things but <laughs> the truth of the matter is inside the bubble it's all there oh yeah it's all there and maybe not at the public and prolific nature as it is in other communities outside of say you know kind of conservative texas but uh it's all here yeah and again i don't want to be the doomsayer but i think it's just it'll just continue to increase to become more and more uh, prolific and more public just by the nature of how these things go yeah yeah and i mean we've i mean we've seen that the evolution of certain things through so you know again back to the discussion it weren't we don't want to raise naive children, so we have yeah. to be very intentional and careful about kind of this um, 
calculated release of information over the life of a child. And so there's, you know, those early years when, um, and maybe, again, maybe this is old school, but I believe in it, is protecting that naive innocence of a child for as long as we can. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so being careful not to allow them to see or to hear some themes is is not irresponsible. In fact, it's very responsible. It's It's protecting their young mind. And then you start looking at ages like um, 9, 10, and 11. Well, there's a shift there, a, a maturity shift that's taken from, you know, 3, 4, 5 to 8, 9, 10, 11. Um, there's a shift. And so now a release of additional information and ideas is appropriate because they have a little bit bigger bandwidth to handle it. But you're still being careful. Parents, you know, you know, if, if, if you haven't introduced the idea of sexuality to your children by that age, well, then you're begging for problems because they've already, they're probably already having those conversations. And they're having them with their friends, and those aren't healthy, mature, you know, inputs. Mm-hmm. So um, you have to start introducing children to those sorts of themes, but to what you know, to what depth are you diving into that topic? Yeah. Well, then, then you come into 12, 13, 14, 15. Again, their whole world's expanding. They've gone from elementary school now to junior high school, a whole host of inputs into their life that are exposing them to a lot more. So really the, the big thing there is, uh, have you created a culture where you can have the conversations? Yeah, where it's safe and it's comfortable to talk about whatever without mom and dad melting down and blowing up and, you know, reacting strongly that just scares the child from feeling safe to talk about those things. Mom and dads have to be able to hear whatever their kid is curious about and have that conversation so that by 17, 18 and 19, almost any topic is on the table and is comfortable to be discussed and explored because now you have a new bandwidth of maturity and capacity for the, the child to handle it. Plus, now you're in the whole preparation stage. I mean, the whole journey is a preparation, but it gets really, really critical in that you know, 16, 17, 18 um, years old period where I'm getting ready to send them off to college or career. They're going to be out on their own autonomous, you know, directors of their own fate kind of thing. And if you haven't taught them how to think, if you haven't taught them how to choose, if you haven't taught them how to stand up in the face of peer pressure and go against the flow, um, then basically you're sending kids out ill-equipped for life yeah and the role of the parent as a steward of the lives that were invested to them that's maybe the top of the list of your job is to prepare your child for the day that they embark on life on their own well i think that's a really really good just straightforward answer to do we shield our kids from evil or show them it it's if you 
shield them too much, they won't even be able to identify evil yeah. when it's in front of them. They won't. They won't even recognize it. Yeah. I had this thing I did when the boys were little, and I mean, it's fairly, uh, it's fairly innocent, but it was very intentional on my part. Um, we'd be sitting watching television together, and a commercial would come on, and I'd say to them, "Boys, what are they selling?" Mm. And at one age, they would always say they would just answer the product. Oh, they're selling soda or they're selling a car, or they're selling a mortgage. And I'd say, no, what are they selling? And they'd always, I don't know, Dad, what? They're selling a car, they're selling a soda. And so then I'd get into a discussion with them, and it was all kind of fun. It was playful. And I'd say, well, look at the people who are in the commercial. And um, look at how they're dressed, or look at the car they're driving, and look how the advertisers are making that sound like it's so appealing or it's so successful or so. And so I would get into these discussions. They're selling you a worldview. Yeah. And they're selling you a lie is that if you drive this car, people will think you're successful and people will admire you and people will think you're wealthy. Or if you dress these ways, or if you drink these things, then you're going to have lots of friends who are standing around you having lots of fun. And just kind of opening their world up to the fact that not everything is as it appears, I think in some ways was intentional parenting mm-hmm. to prepare them to see to see their world through, you know, a little bit broader lens. Yeah. And I think there can be a lot of creative ways that parents can do that sort of thing. But the point is parents have to do it. They have to be actively engaged and very vigilant at preparing their child to become an adult. You know, I was, I was thinking as I was getting, you know, preparing for our talk today. Um, you know, as a pastor, I, I get, I get invited into some very personal sides of people's lives and not here and there. I mean, pretty regularly, um, I'm talking to parents. And one of the things that I've seen a, a shift just in the last few years, how many parents have come to talk to me? They have a college student who went off to college, and either their freshman or sophomore year, they came home. And the parents have really worried and kind of broken heart and con- broken heart and confused by that. And what I'm finding in these conversations with these parents is what brought the kid home was not academics. A lot of times they were making straight A's. They were getting 4.0s. They were doing fine academically. It was the other dimensions of being away on their own at college that proved to be overwhelming. It was the responsibilities. Mm. It was the pressures it was the social relational dynamics. It was um, a lot of emotional um, fragility where they just couldn't handle what it is that they were facing. And what that is is a reflection that in many ways their kid wasn't prepared. That there was a part of... Um, a parenting strategy for the first 18 years of their, of their kid's life that really didn't sufficiently prepare them for what 
they were about to encounter. And um, it's just been interesting that that's a kind of a growing trend of conversations I'm having with parents. Yeah. Now, I have this really, you know, old guy explanation for that. Uh-huh. I and, see it. And when I've shared it, one of my sons just called me a boomer. You know, just. Nice. Yeah, making fun of me. Uh-huh. And, again, we can go down this track just a little ways, but. I absolutely think there's a relationship between sort of the emotional, relational, uh, psychological fragility that we're finding more prevalent in the lives of young people. I think that there's a relationship to that in video games. Hmm. That a child who spends so much time kind of in this unreal world of video games and they are in control, and everything sort of falls out as they determine it. Um, And the amount of time that they spend on those games, and you you can't miss the connection that for a lot of these kids, video games become a way of coping with what is hard or disappointing or frustrating in real life. So something gets hard, something's disappointing, something's frustrating, they run off, they play their game, they hide in that little world of the video game. And you think about the number of hours and the number of years that a child spends kind of in that coping escapist um, world of games, and then he's tossed out, and maybe that's a dramatic term, but he's, he's thrown out of the nest. He goes off to college, and now it's real. Mom and dad aren't picking up after him and doing his wash and bake, making his food and um, setting his schedule about when he's going to study. And, and so there's just a host of things that are going to be frustrating and difficult and disappointing. Um, and what I... I, what I'm surmising is that his or her inability to be able to handle real life in that context of college or the first years of career has to do with the fact that they have not developed the emotional, psychological capacity to handle frustration, disappointment, and difficulty because of their exposure to this unreal world of games. Now, again, that may sound really old fogey-like, but I, I, I've done enough reading and research on it. I'm not, I'm not positioning myself as some kind of scientist or expert on it, but I think I have enough proof to say I'm somewhere in the ballpark of one of the reasons why we're seeing a lot of 20-somethings who are emotionally unprepared for the world that they encounter when they're on their own. I think that it, here's, I guess, my idea of it. So have you, and I'll, I'm going to tie this, I'm not going to get too far away from the topic, but do you know anything about the correlation between if video games increases actual violence, violent video games, is it increased violent in the kids? Um... And I I ask because I do I know what at least the main research has done. So I don't. But 
Yeah, I, do, I haven't I haven't done enough research in that particular angle to say yes or no definitively, but it wouldn't be a hard leap for me to make. Is that if a child is really lost in that kind of you know fantasy world, and the game offers an option of violence as a way of dealing with whatever obstacle they face in the game, again younger minds don't have the capacity or the rationale to distinguish that it may be a higher likelihood that they could resort to violence in the real world as a response to something that's threatening or mm-hmm. um, opposing. So from the, 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 the studies that I found is that it, it doesn't increase acts of violence in kids, but it does increase the uh, reaction to seeing blood, gore, or violence. So, like, for instance, the army will oftentimes even use simulations, which is what a video game is, to try to uh, dull oh. the reaction to such yeah. such things. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because I think that your reasons for why you think video games do that, because they can't control it, and they can just, like, they're safe inside that world, they have to go their way... I don't think it's video games so much. I think that that's just one piece of a bigger problem, which is too safe of parenting. Um, I don't know if you've ever read the book, um, The Coddling of the American Mind. I have not. It's by Jonathan Haidt. It's very good. It's insightful. Um, but that and other things that you can just examine, it's like, okay, think of leave it to beaver times. Mm-hmm. They could go out, be home by six. Okay. Whenever you were, yeah. I mean, like, that's what I grew Yeah, up. that's what you grew up with. That's kind of how I grew up, but that's just because my dad's my dad. Um, he didn't care. Yeah. Every time I got to cut the knee of stitches, he's like, I can do it. If I need to get the stitches out, he's like, I can pull them out. I'm like, I'll pass. But the kids could go out. If they got hurt, they'd take care of themselves. If somebody was being a bully, they'd take care of themselves for the most part. Um, if they needed help with something, they either helped each other. Um, but then it starts to change to where now they no longer take care of those problems themselves, they no longer find answers themselves, they no longer do any of those things. As soon as something problematic comes up, maybe something they don't like, yeah. there's always somebody of authority they can run to to then stop that thing from occurring. To fix it for them. Yep. If somebody's being mean, go tell. Somebody's saying something you don't like, go tell. Mm-hmm. All of these things. And so then I think I think a lot of parents would much rather their kid be playing video games than off possibly getting hurt mm. in a small way. Yeah. Um, they'll complain about, oh, how he only plays video games, but they complain even more if there's any risk of him facing any kind of danger or yeah. or anything at all. Yeah. Um, I guess that's where I would push back on that idea because I do think it is too safe of parenting that's well, I mean, think about these it. kids. Well, think about it. So they're not they're not unrelated. No, no, no. If you have a parent who's excessive at protecting their child, and video games is one of the ways that they are assured that their child's safely in the the context of their home and nothing can happen to them, well, then this one's feeding the other. Yep. And again, I I don't think this would be an inaccurate statement. There, There are plenty of parents who are lazy and apathetic about the hard work of parenting that they love devices like 
televisions and video games and, and social media because it keeps the child occupied. And then they are free to kind of do whatever, the parent's free to do whatever they want to do because they don't have to manage. But the problem with that is they're handing them a device that's dangerous. Yes, it can be educational. I, I know the pushback. Oh, but there's so many educational programs. Yes, but a child left unattended to television, computer, or social media is basically got an entire world open to them yep. that they will either stumble into or they'll find another way. And then, then it can be off to the races because, again, so many times children lack the the maturity at certain ages to be able to distinguish if this is a safe place or a, a dangerous place. And I think, too, like I've definitely seen the parents that just, if their kid is being annoying, <laughs> throw them an iPad and say, go yeah. play. Which yeah. normally that's what the kid ends up wanting anyways. So then they aren't annoying anymore. Um, but I think a lot of it even comes from, I think, better a better place within a parent. Again, I don't have parents. I'm not, I have parents. I don't have kids, so maybe I'm being naive, but parents want their kids to be safe. So keeping them from the big bad world is going to be something that's not an unreasonable uh, desire for for me to understand. Um, The thing is, it's like, this is like Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's like she was willing to allow her son to die. Granted, there was a, I would say, the biggest uh, reason possible for that to save the world but that's just an archetype of what all parents essentially have to do they have to allow their kids to get hurt and they have to allow their kids to just go off right and we're not allowing our we're not i don't think that we're allowing our kids to go i can see it in my friends i mean one i'm still at home which is it it's not embarrassing anymore necessarily but like it used to be embarrassing it's like we should be out on your own it's not so much anymore. Things are way more expensive, whatever. There's a whole bunch of reasons and excuses. But, like, a lot of my friends don't know how to survive by themselves. Granted, they're guys. But, like, the the girls have their own issues. Yeah. And so they're not being allowed to go off. And good parents have to – it's like how every good teacher eventually has to become – has to fail, has to become, like – they would hope that their student becomes better than them, mm-hmm. right? Every good parent has to, like, fail – so that their kid can become better than how he is now. Peterson talks about like, well, you can make your kid entirely safe if you just made him titanium. He's huge. He, anything that's possibly wrong, he's just programmed. All that, but then you don't have a kid anymore. Hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You disagree? No, I don't disagree. What, what I'm thinking is... Um, I just keep coming back to how imperative it is that parents be actively engaged Mm -hmm. and vigilant to really know what's transpiring in the life of their child and and who they're encountering as friends and what, what they're being asked to read and discuss at school and where they are on the internet. Um, not not assuming, not assuming. Well, my my boy's good. He'll he'll make good choices, and it, it, you just can't be that careless. Um, I'd rather go poking around and find out 
um, that he is, in fact, making good choices and trustworthy rather than just assuming that and finding out that your son or your daughter's into places that are dangerous. And and that's, again, I, I it's just funny how often I'm saying something about how this makes me sound old because there was just a different day and age in which I grew up in. But, you know, we wouldn't give a three-year-old a machete. Yeah. And we wouldn't give a, a 10-year-old a rattlesnake as a pet because there's inherent dangers. But we naively hand them a cell phone. Oh, yeah. And we buy them, you know, whatever apps and social media accounts that they want to have. Most of them are, many of them are free. But we give them the resources to go to places that are, in fact, dangerous. And um, I, I, I'm just thinking uh, it, it has to be different than that if we expect different results. And I have to tell you, I got a couple of friends who have made decisions and it's very unpopular decisions, very unpopular with other parents. It's very unpopular with their children. And they're just saying no phone until, you know, a certain age, Mm -hmm. much later than all the other kids. Or um, there's no um, after midnight activities until a certain age. And everybody else is out till, you know, two and three in the morning. Or there's, um, you know, a host of controls that they're putting in place. And they they make the kid feel, you know, really put upon. And they've got friends who make fun of them for being, you know, so conservative about their parenting. But I'm telling you, my hat's off to some of these parents who are making those kinds of decisions. Because I'm just aware of so many other parents who who don't have any controls about what they're allowing their kids to do, and yet they find themselves in my office going, my heart's broken because my kid's a mess. Yep. And there there has to be a correlation. I don't know how you, you um, would disagree with the correlation that this untapped influence of all sorts of improper um, entertainment, it's having an impact. Oh yeah, I mean, and don't, and I don't think you think this necessarily, but I wasn't arguing for um, no constraints or or uh, making sure that you're very very vigilant. In fact, I mean, like for sure, my kid will be whenever he gets a phone, if it's too early, there will be content restrictions all over that thing, mm-hmm. and time restrictions all over that thing. Um, I guess I was, what I was saying was whenever it comes to conflict more than, um, I was arguing that we've been too safe whenever it comes to conflict with our kids. Sure, sure. And and then that's what results in a lot of the, the Yeah, if, if you're always rescuing your kid, they don't develop a kind of mental, emotional toughness that life. Yeah. That life requires. That's where the fragility comes from. Yeah. And, you know, you can, uh, like I've seen it with, you know, two different parenting approaches just in the same couple. Like sometimes men have a very different parenting style than a wife. Mm-hmm. A husband has a different parenting style than a wife. And so, you know, the kid falls down and skins his knee. And, and again, I'm not trying to be stereotypical here, but 
the mom runs over and, oh, you're okay, and holds him and brushes it off and kisses it and, you know, all the, all the stuff. Kid falls down, dad goes, oh, get up, you're fine, you know, rub it off, walk it off. And again, there's all sorts of opinions about who's right and who's wrong in their parenting style. They're both right. In those moments. You know? Yeah. And so maybe there's a balance is that the child needs some reassurance and some comfort when they face pain. But to isolate and insulate them from that pain and not teach them that there is the responsibility of getting up and moving on, shaking it off and proceeding forward. Um, that's just as important to that, that child's development. A perfect example of that. In fact, it actually happened today. Allie sent me this video. Could we talk about, we read books and stuff, so we talk about parenting and how we want to parent because that's right. a wise thing to talk about before marriage. Absolutely. Especially if you're not on the same page about it. It's one of the five topics. Yep. That could destroy the entire thing. Anyways, we're on the same page just about most things. At least we'll figure it out. We might not be once we get there. But um, she sent me this video of this husband, uh, a father, holding space, is what they called it, holding space for this kid who was throwing a tantrum. Okay. Basically just had this kid just allowed him to throw his tantrum. Yeah. Which I think is wise. Like, not, like he just sat there and cried, basically, and yelled. But he didn't get what he wanted. But then I saw the dad. This kid was like thrashing around. He was, and this kid was face down, laying down, and he was kicking. And the dad was holding his arm out so that his feet would hit the dad's arm instead of the floor. Oh. And I was like, <laughs> this is a perfect example of like, I would just let the kid kick the floor once, realize it hurts, and then he doesn't do it again. It's yeah. like, well, that's not a, but now it's like, well, we didn't shield them from all of that. Like, he'll be fine. Just let him scream. It's like, and don't let him hurt himself while he's being ridiculous. Okay. But but I do think that you see a lot of that of like, of just of shielding it from everything and, and allowing that that fragility to, to, to fester because, and it comes from a good place, which is the bad part. It's like, well, I love my kid. I want him to be safe. I don't want him to be unhappy. Right. But too much of that, you end up creating somebody who's not ready for the world um, and then will suffer because of it, which makes the parents feel horrible about themselves. Yeah, we're really uncomfortable these days with love being hard. Love yes. always has to be happy and convenient and comfortable and accepting and affirming. And you no, know, sometimes true love is saying hard things and having to do hard things to protect to honestly protect somebody either from themselves or for something else that's dangerous. And, um, yeah, we struggle in our culture nowadays with understanding what love is. And we're getting bombarded with this whole idea that if you love me, I get to do whatever I want. And the truth of the matter is that that's not true, that if I love you, I will warn you off from the, the dangerous road that you're on leads to god loved us so much that he allowed his son to be crucified on a cross that's pretty hard love right right like there's something given there and and there's something asked of someone uh when that love and and growth like if you think of love he's like well i want my kid to grow up and and become an individual well that means he has to grow and if you have to grow well then you have to allow the kid to experience uh pain and conflict and a certain amount of, I'm going to use the word suffering, but like 
there has to be sacrifices made, like in the same way in the gym. We talked about this kind of stuff before, but it's like it hurts whenever you push the amount that you can push or beyond that amount. Yeah, yeah. And you're going to fail. And you're going to get stuck and look like a dummy. But um, you're not doing it right if you're looking like a dummy. Well, whenever you fail, you look like a dummy. <laughs> Nobody else thinks you look like a dummy. but You feel like you look like a dummy. Yeah, because everybody else fails too when they're in there, yeah. which is like why people like gym cultures. It's like, yeah, we all get it. kind of sucks. <laughs> but you get, you get better because of it, right? Right. So I was going to tell you an interesting story that I think is um, is relevant to this topic. When when we had our first son, we lived in Madison, Wisconsin, and we had a friend at our church that that I was serving at. She was a pediatrician. She was just this delightful person. She had this really kind of vivacious personality, and she was funny, and she. She brought that into her profession. She was fun to be around um, if you were a parent with a small child because she could just make the teachable point of view so entertaining. And um, she came to San Antonio after we moved here. Her and her husband came here for a conference, I think, or they were looking to move here. can't remember exactly how it worked out, but we, we had dinner with them, and... Uh, at that time, our son was now, I think, two, two or three. And I asked her, I said, why does our son ask us the same questions over and over and over again? You know, why is this or what is that? I mean, he would just ask. And we would tell him, and 10 minutes later, he'd ask us the exact same question. And she had such a profound answer. She said, he's... He's seeing if you'll answer him the same way every time. What's true? What's real? And so what she's doing, what he said, she's, what she said he's doing is he's verifying truth. Yeah. And he's verifying trust. Can he trust you to consistently tell him the truth? Mm. And that was so enlightening about so many things. And so when you stop and look at our world today, and what's happening, you have an entire push to redefine truth to where now pronouns don't mean what the rules of the use of pronouns means. Or scientific fact is no longer seen as inflexible truth or fact. Depends. We can we can change it. Depends on the fact, right? Right. And Which so, makes it worse. what we're happening is we're telling we're 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 telling children, no, that man can be a woman, or that man can use pronouns like he, uh, like she and her, and what it does is it not only confuses the child but it demolishes a sense of trust in a society and people to tell them the truth because everything's different or they're trying to make everything different or equal, equal. Yeah. And so what happens is, you know, like a child asks, what's that? And you say, it's a cat. What's that? It's a cat. What's that? It's a cat. And you, you do that enough times, the child's collecting because he's born with a blank slate of information 
And it's all input into what he begins to understand about his world through observation and through listening. And so he asked that question enough times. He's told that's a cat enough times. He begins to understand that four-legged animal with that particular tail. They call that a cat. Well, now he trusts that that's a cat. And then he sees another four-legged animal, and it's, it's got four legs and a tail. And he says, that's a cat. And no, the adult says, no, that's a dog. What's that? And so now he has to work through kind of a, a, a new set of information. And through his observation, he begins to put together, oh, the do- that, that animal with the four legs but the longer nose and the stiffer tail, they call that a dog. So as long as that stays consistent, then we have a means of communication and dialogue, and we have a means of trust. But when you start changing the categories and the words that go with them, then a child doesn't know what to believe, Mm -hmm. and he doesn't know who to trust. And so that's why I think parents have to be um, incredibly engaged, and they have to be incredibly bold to resist a lot of what's being shoved down our throats these days through education, through social media, through uh, political influences. A parent has to be incredibly bold to stand in opposition to that thing and refuse to let their child be um, manipulated by it. Yeah. Because in the end... We're not just confusing that child, but we're destroying their sense of trust. Mm. Trust in the parent, trust in teachers, trust in um, authority, trust in anybody or anything. Because if we're, if we're so free to change the rules, then there are no rules. And nothing, nothing can be consistent. And so this, this is, I think, the really challenging world that, that parents are living in right now with this attempt to change the way that language works, the, uh, this insistence to change the way that science works, uh, the way that um, structure in society works. And, man, that's hard. Oh, yeah. And so parents, uh, you know, my prayer for them is be bold. Do not be intimidated by the louder voices to end up swallowing the lie as the truth because you're just you're hurting yourself, you're hurting your kid, you're you're ultimately hurting uh, our society as a whole if we allow that sort of um, that sort of thinking to um, become the way that we relate to each other. It wouldn't be good. Yeah, a child without any kind of truth or if he doesn't hit any um, opposition. So like if he has no guidelines, if you don't get on to I was talking to this one, I was listening to this one person. He was talking about how one time he did horribly on his uh, grade report uh, and he shows it to his mom and his mom goes, Oh, it's not so bad. And the kid and the guy was like, he's reflecting back. He's like, geez, am I like really that worthless that you can't even like, like do you do you either don't think I can do better, or you think I'm so fragile that I can't t- like you shouldn't be proud of me for that right? And it's like a kid without any borders doesn't know what he can and can't do, and if he can do everything because everything is equal, like you said, yeah. 
He's not going to do anything. He's going to be confused the entire time. Right. So, very dicey world. Um, I don't know how we're doing on time here, but... Uh, yeah, I, we'll probably I, wrap it up here before I don't want to. I don't want to end without making two recommendations. Um, parents, if, if you're listening and interested in some resources, these are just two suggestions I'm making. Um, if you've never seen the documentary called The Social Dilemma, mm-hmm. I would highly encourage it. Uh, it's incredibly insightful about the power of the manipulation that's happening with social media. I mean, it's an entire, you know, we use the word all the time, algorithm. I mean, it is a very intentional, um, destructive algorithm that's being used to have an influence in your kids' lives and creating what essentially amounts to an addiction. And so... If you want to be a parent who's responsibly involved in allowing your kids access to social media, please um, watch that documentary. I think it's so educational. And the really funny or interesting thing about it is some of the original creators of social media are the people being interviewed. And it's amazing how many of them would say without hesitation, my child does not have access to social media and they created it yeah but they created it and watched it be you know overrun with um um destructive forces to it created it ended up becoming something that the original creators never intended and so now they're standing back saying oh my gosh what have we created and my child doesn't have access to it so parent i just i'd just a recommendation. The Social Dilemma is a really, really um, great resource. The other one is um, a, maybe more for a teenager, a uh, young teen. Uh, the book uh, Principle of the Path by Andy Stanley, I just think is such a great read to prepare a child to understand a little bit about how life works and where certain choices and certain priorities and certain behaviors will ultimately lead to if um, somebody stays on the path. So I would highly recommend that book. I, I put the challenge out to our church family to get their teenagers to read the book. I had a lot of people that took me up on it, and we've heard a lot of great stories back about how that was very, very helpful. I'd even go so far as to say, you know, offer your kid $100, read the book, and then we're going to sit down and discuss it, and then I'll, I'll pay you $100. It would be $100 worth investing in the future of your child. So it's a great book, and it comes from a very biblical you know, perspective of what wisdom is and how it all works and how God designed life to work. So um, another recommendation I'd make to you. And then the third recommendation, and I'll, I'll, I'll be done uh, recommending things, is, man, parent, anything that you can do to normalize the discussion of faith in your home. The idea of praying together, reading a Bible together, discussing theological and spiritual topics together, starting at the earliest ages, anything that you can do to normalize that will go so far in creating some really wonderful lines of communication with your kids as they get older. And so whether that's, you know, 
And here we go. We got callers calling the in now. Heck? Yeah. <laughs> the lines are hot. <laughs> um, anything that you can do from the early stages, you know, reading Bible stories when you're tucking your kids in bed at night, um, devotionals as a family sitting around the dinner table, um, beginning meals with a word of prayer. And that's not always about praying for the food. That's about praying for each other, praying for things that are going on in each other's lives. Um, starting in those early days of a child's life, that's that just makes it easier to normalize it. Again, I'm a preacher, so you might expect me to, to say this, but mom and dad setting the example, the priority of attending church and being you know, at church as a family on Sundays goes a long way to establishing that this is this is a priority and a value in our life. And um, again, I don't, I don't want to be the bad guy here, but modeling for your children that somehow church is an option. And if there isn't anything more exciting or more um, attractive to us, we'll go to church. But anything from the lake to select baseball to a host of other activities, the family that kind of, you know, dives in and out of church based on the priorities of other things is just modeling that it's really not that big of a value and it's not that big of a deal. So in the mind of a child, it just becomes an option. Yeah, It's optional. And uh, so I just, I just think anytime you're inviting God and his wisdom into your relationship as a parent with your child and making it really comfortable to have those discussions in relationship to you know, things like racism and sexuality and a, and a host of other topics. Um, you're just going to, you're just going to have not only uh, great conversations that serve your child well, you also, I believe, have the help of God in um, your partnership as a parent, and it's just going to better serve you. So, um, I, I hope some of those suggestions might be helpful to, to parents who are out there trying to, to figure out what to do. Um, if you got kids in um, junior high and senior high, uh, find a great church with a great pastor, great student pastors, and um, make use of that occasion to keep your child connected to uh, good friends and good resources and um I just think those are really, really important uh, priorities for a family that wants to um, not only raise children well, but um, have God's help in the equation to do that. Yeah, yeah, and I guess I'm going to be kind of straightforward here, but I see a lot of uh, recommendation from me, too. Um, I see a lot of families coming, and the dad is not with them. And uh, that... That is not how it should be. Um, I think the fathers should try everything in their power to be at church with their with their families. Um, but rarely do I ever hear of a man saying, yeah, my wife didn't want to come to church this morning. I don't know if I've ever heard that ever once, not even once. Um, sometimes, but not because they're just out doing something else, really, most of the time. Yeah. Um, I would just say that fathers need to make that a priority for sure. And then you touched on the other one, which was... I think very instrumental in my life. Again, I'm not a kid. I'm not a, oh, I can't get that right. I'm not a parent. But as a kid, reflecting back, um, eating dinner around the dinner table 
almost every night, every week, was very, very instrumental. It made me uh, comfortable speaking to people, formulating my thoughts, telling people about my day, even just small stuff, and then praying around the table and having that led and modeled by the parent. Um, oftentimes, with homework and how busy everybody is, the meal's the only time they're all together. And most now don't even get that. But if that can become a priority, I think that alone could change so much. In oh, I, I couldn't agree more. I think there's something very holy about a dinner table. I was raised in a family. My wife was raised in a family where we had dinner together every night with our parents. And then Charlotte and I, you know, that was inflexible. Yep. If, you know, as much as we could, if they had a, you know, football practice or something, um, we understood that later in life, but um, we were almost every night of the week we were having dinner together. And you're right. There's an environment there. There's a there's a little microcosm of healthy living relationally that's captured in that meal together, and um, it's so important. Mm. And then I, I couldn't affirm more this whole priority of a dad's involvement in this um you know there's a quote speed of the leader speed of the team and when dad is sending off mom and the kids to church while he you know sleeps later works on the car goes plays golf whether he knows it or not he's he is teaching a value he is modeling a a priority and what will happen is that once that child develops enough autonomy to be able to speak his own mind, he's going to say, why should I go to church if dad doesn't? Yep. And mom's going to be at a loss of knowing how to answer that because the kid's exactly right. And uh, so, yeah. And I'm really grateful. There's, there's some wonderful dads at Cibolo Creek who, whether they're, you know, uh, divorced and they're single and so they're raising their their kids or they have a wife who's not interested. We have some wonderful examples of dads who come to church with their kids, even though mom doesn't. And I've always just had, you know, just an enormous respect for them because I think they're they're making a really, really wise choice that's going to serve them well for for years and years to come in the Mm -hmm. life of their kid. And, you know, I'm certainly... I was just, I was in a counseling appointment here a couple of weeks ago and I was, this guy's wanting to make some changes in his life and quote unquote, get his life together. That's what he was talking about. And, and, um, and so I, I was saying, well, if you're really serious about that, you know, a suggestion I'd make to you is, uh, make, make attending church on a Sunday morning a priority. Yeah. And I said, it's not about you checking a box and, you know, um, fulfilling some sort of obligation that you went to church. It's about you getting around the people and the place where God does stuff. Mm-hmm. And so if you're wanting to increase the exposure that God has in your life, then put yourself in those places. And I, I actually ended up describing it as if you want to warm up to God, um, get around the campfire where he can be found. And one of those places is church. He has established the gathering together of believers for worship as a place where he is and a place where he works 
And so if you're wanting to increase your exposure to God at work in your life, church is a great option, not as some obligation that you have to fulfill, but as a community of people that um, provide you a context of your new quest to make God a larger priority in your life. And so the same with with families, with children. I'm not talking about dragging kids to church by their hair um, as some sort of, you know, compulsory obligation. I'm talking about really inviting your children to engage in the life and the worship of a church, their friends, uh, the studies, the the activities that um, nurture spiritual growth in the life of the kids so that they really, they really do end up appreciating and valuing the input that a church family has in their life rather than, well, I had to go to this thing and sit and listen to some guy. Um, don't be dragging your kids to the adult service and expecting them to be really, really engaged. Get your kid involved in the children's ministry or the student ministry where there's peers and topics and presentations that are much more in the style that your kids are going to, you know, gravitate toward. Um, Whatever you do, don't make church a chore because nobody likes chores. (laughs) The minute that they can stop doing that chore, they will. So work really hard at making uh, your family's experience at church is really delightful thing. And and it, it'll pay huge dividends for years and years to come. Yeah, yep. All good stuff. And any of those, uh, I know you mentioned a book or two um, and uh, The Social Dilemma. I can put that stuff in the uh, episode notes at okay. the bottom. That's the first time I've said that. Wow, the episode notes. The show notes, the episode notes. Wow. <laughs> Sounds so official. It's like we're trying to create a podcast or something. It is. I feel like one of the other, like, two million of these that there that exist. <laughs> Probably more. But anyways, hope that this was helpful. Um, and, heck, there's so much that we could say about tips and things for parents and that might justify completely like another episode, which I'm sure we'll touch on whenever it comes to families. And There's no shortage of topics that we've identified to talk about. No, none at all. So uh, we'll just keep forging ahead, and I hope that over time we uh, we develop a bit of a recipe for how best to serve our audience, and that um, in time we we get a sense of knowing that we're flipping the switches and, and uh, talking about the kinds of things that are helpful to people. Because that, in the end of the day, is what this was all created for. Exactly right. Well, thank you, Wyatt. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Absolutely. See you guys next time. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget that new episodes are released every Wednesday. If you'd like to listen to our Sunday morning messages, you can find those by searching Cibolo Creek Messages. And finally, if you'd like to learn more about Cibolo Creek Community Church, you can find us at CiboloCreek.com. Thanks for listening.